Welcome, welcome everyone to another episode of the Bastards of Boston Baseball. Shout out to any new listeners who are joining us for the very first time. We're happy to have you on board. For those of you who have been here from the start, you already know the drill. We live and die by this team just like the rest of you, and we make no apologies for that. I'm your host, Jason Kelly, coming to you from Canton, Massachusetts. If you want to find us on Twitter, you can find the podcast account at Bastards underscore Boston. Joining me on the show tonight from Reading, Pennsylvania, is Micah Storms. Micah, how we doing? Jason, I'm here. It's only fitting. I feel like I've had all the really bad series for the most part covering the Sox team, and it's only fitting that I cover them when they are completely buried and probably dead. So uh, I'll treat this like a therapy session because um, – I don't think I've been as angry watching a Red Sox game as I was on Monday night in quite some time. So it'll be a therapy session. Yeah, I don't blame you. This this series was a doozy. So, uh, yeah, we're going to treat this just like a therapy session. We'll all get through this together. But uh, it was definitely a tough three days uh, for, for the Red Sox, for sure. Also with us on the show tonight from Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, by way of Windham, Maine, is Terry Cushman. Terry, how you doing? Not too bad. I'm in the alley of Hurricane Idalia, Idalia, however you pronounce it. Um, it's just a tropical storm at this point, and I think the winds are only hitting about sixty or so, which isn't uh, isn't that bad. So it's funny because everybody texts me. They're like, "Oh my god, are you guys going to be okay?" You know, because you know South Carolina. Conceivably, you could get hit pretty good, but but. Yeah, last year, Hurricane Ian, the winds were hitting like 80. So I was like, eh, you know, being a homeowner now, I worry about my roof and stuff. But <laughs> but yeah, anyway, so that's good. And uh, the Red Sox uh, just had Hurricane Houston roll through <laughs> and uh, took on a lot of water. And uh, I think they're currently floating down the Charles River in a life raft right now. Yeah, not not going to be queuing the duck boats uh, this season. The the Red Sox are underwater this time. So, yeah, bad three-game sweep at the hands of the Houston Astros, a team that the Red Sox were looking up at in the wild card race. And it's one of those series that we talked about going in. If you win, if you sweep them, you win those three games, all of a sudden you find yourself a game and a half out. Now it's real. Instead, they're seven and a half out, or six and a half, I think. Six and a half now, uh, as of this recording. So, yeah, just not not what they needed. Awful series for them. And uh, unfortunately, we're going to have to just break it all down and get into it because that's what we're here for. So let's not waste any time. Let's get into our midweek bottom five list because it was a big time bottom five the, these past three days. We're going to start off with the pitching and we're going to start with Brian Bayo, uh, who had another sort of iffy outing. Wasn't terrible. He wasn't you know, downright awful, but only made it four and two thirds started off the game by giving up back-to-back homers. Um, and just really, you know, he was pulled after 82 pitches, which was definitely questionable. I think we'll get to that decision a little bit later. Um, but again, you see that Brian Bayo is running out of steam and that hitters are starting to figure him out a lot quicker now. Um, and we've talked about Bayo before, you know, is he's not a big strikeout guy which 
in the past we said, yeah, it's not a big deal. If he turns into a really good version of Marcus Stroman, or he just gets a lot of ground balls with a power sinker, that's okay. You don't mind that. But if he's not going to strike guys out and he's going to give up home runs the way that he is, well, then that's a problem. That's a whole new set of issues. And a guy who features a power sinker like him shouldn't be giving up home runs the way that he is. Um, obviously, he's young. This is sort of his first full season pitching, so he still has a lot of room to grow. I imagine the Red Sox will be working very extensively with him in the offseason to figure out how to get the ball down more, how to get more swings and misses, um, and how to keep the ball in the ballpark. But for right now, where this team is, unfortunately, because you didn't get any help at the deadline, you have to rely on Brian Bayo to go out there and pitch like an ace. And we're clearly seeing he's not ready for that role yet. He's not ready to be an ace. Um, hopefully next year he takes a major step forward and at least establishes himself as a really good number two or number three option. But for right now, this is what you got. You've got Brian Bayo, who's, you know, under 25 years old, trying to, you know, put this team on his back in a ways. He just doesn't have enough firepower to do it. So not a horrible start from him, but not exactly uh, what the Red Sox needed either. Micah, what were your thoughts on uh, Bayo's performance this week? Yeah, you bring up some interesting points, Jason. I think with the fact that Bloom decided to not add any pitching at the deadline really did Bayo a disservice because he's definitely a guy, his first full big league season, he could have benefited from a skipped start and, you know, a phantom I Elston or something like that. Like there's nothing wrong with that. Just give him a little bit of a breather because it's a long season. And we definitely have, I think his stuff, the sharpness is not nearly what it, what it has been, um, you know, during that run he went on in May in the beginning of June. It's just not quite there right now. Um, but to go back to his start, it really wasn't that bad. I mean, yes, the first inning was not ideal. I mean, he did give up two home runs to two really good hitters. But if you go to the point in the game when Devers makes that error, he was at 61 pitches. He had given up three hits and one walk. Only the two runs in the first inning. And he should have had two outs in the fourth inning. If you're going to tell me Bayo's at 62 pitches with two outs in the going into the in the fourth inning, I'm taking that start almost every single time against the Astros. I mean, he he really had a chance to work deep into that game, and Devers boots the ball. He gives up a stolen base, which not his fault necessarily, and then uh, he walks a guy. And then he makes a pitch again to get out of the inning. And it was a tailor-made double play ball right over the bag. And Hamilton throws it away again. Can he make one throw to first base? I mean, come on. What are you working on at AAA? And I'm not trying to hate on the kid. Like, he still is young and who knows what he can become. But I think we've seen more throws from Hamilton that have hit the, the screen in front of the dugout than he's made to the first baseman. But Bayo made two pitches in that inning where he should have had four outs, and he doesn't get out of that inning. He gives up another single, and then after 82 pitches, he's gone. And I made a tweet like, I don't understand why he was removed from that game, and I'll get into this further um, as we continue to talk about this series. But 
why would you take him out of that spot? 82 pitches. Yes, Alvarez got him for two hits in that game, a home run and a double. But if you're trying to develop Bayo, don't you want him to figure out how to work on getting a hitter like Alvarez out when he didn't succeed in the first two times? Like, I don't understand. He wasn't at 100 pitches. It wasn't 105 pitches. He's exhausted. Like, give him that moment. He needed one more out. His defense is atrocious. And I think for the he was screaming in his glove when he came off. I think he's just so sick of this defense because no pitcher, especially a guy who relies on the ground ball, can succeed with this defense. It is terrible, and they need to figure out something. They need a massive revamp of this defense, especially on the infield, because if you're going to have Bayo in this rotation, which it sure looks like it, and he's going to be successful, you can't have a defense that continues to, to boot routine ground balls because that's what they're doing. It's not even tough plays. We've seen them not make tough plays, but they can't even make the basic play. It, it's just it's over and over and over again. It's a different position. The shortstop position's locked down. Now third base is a train wreck. Second base has been a little shaky. You know, first base, there's been some ground balls because, you know, you have Turner over there that should be fielded, but they're just not. And it's it, these aren't hard plays. These are big league plays that need to be made. And for Bayo, you just feel for him because a good infield, if he had the Houston Astros infield, I don't think we would be seeing nearly the tough outings that we've seen lately from Bayo. Terry. It's been a struggle for him. And I don't this think this game was was that much different. Um, he only had two strikeouts the whole game, two strikeouts the whole game, and one of those strikeouts was the very first at bat. So he strikes out. I think that was Altuve, and then goes through the rest of the outing with just one more strikeout. As far as the um, fifth inning, which thanks to Devers, was a was a bit of an adventure. I mean, it's a core is in a tough spot there. And you've got runners on second and third. It's a three to one game. And you've got Alvarez up, who owns the Red Sox, who has, I think, a a six a six hundred plus batting average at Fenway Park. He just completely owns this ballpark. So, I mean, it was a tough spot there, but I don't know. And if you listen to the last episode, I'm not going to get completely into it. You can go back and hear it if, if you haven't already. But I destroyed Dave Bush, and I can't wait for the day where Brian Bayo is working with a different pitching coach because with his fastball hitting anywhere from 96 to 98 miles an hour, he should be missing some bats. And for some reason he doesn't, I don't know what they're missing. I don't know how to get him there. Obviously um, my big point in, in the last episode was that all it took for the Dodgers to fix Ryan Brazier was to give him a cutter and that's it. And he's, he might be the nastiest reliever right now in Major League Baseball. He came back to Fenway with the Dodgers, pitched one inning, got two strikeouts in that inning, was not phased by being in his previous house of horrors one bit. So I can't wait for that day. I, I'm not I'm not a pessimist on Bayo at all. I, I know he's going to figure it out. I love his attitude. 
you know, he's not, he doesn't have the, I, I don't know the word for it. He doesn't quite have the intensity of a Jonathan Papelbon out there, but you could tell he really wants it and, and he's really going after it. And I, and I love that. And I think that embodies, you know, the type of personality you need to be successful in Boston. We saw David Price struggle with that mightily. He finally had his day uh, in late 2018, but but I'm a, I'm a I'm an optimist in Bayo long term. But I I don't think he's trending upwards in the last several weeks. I, I think he's trending down, and and there's a lot of reasons for that, and and some of that's beyond his control. But I uh, I wasn't surprised he he didn't get the W here. Yeah, it, it certainly is becoming a referendum on Dave Bush and, and the pitching program at the major league level because Bayo obviously has great stuff. So why isn't it that he's taking that next step forward, you know, to punch more guys out and to really be a nail down starter? And yeah, I mean, it's, you know, you can count on one hand um, how many pitchers have gotten better under this program. It's going to take a lot more to count the ones that have gotten worse. So that's definitely becoming an issue. Um, Mike, any other thoughts? Yeah, I'm not even thinking about the idea of them chasing a playoff spot now. Like that, that's long gone, in my opinion. So, um, in the month of September, do you think they will shut Bayo down to control his innings at some point? Maybe the last week or two? You think that's a possibility? I would. I don't see why not. At this point, if you're completely out of it, yeah, why not? I mean, at, at that point, just protect your future asset. Yeah, there's no there's no point in throwing him out there just to let him go four innings, you know, have the defense boot a couple balls behind him, have him get frustrated and, you know, stress pitch for lack of a better term. So I kind of hope they do that if it gets that bad. Yeah. But also, you know, Bloom's rear end is on the line and the win total might still matter to him, you know. 78 wins versus possibly 82 wins could be a big deal to him. So what's the mindset going to be? And just in case it happens, I'm, I'm not supremely confident, but I just want to remind everybody one week from tomorrow uh, would have been the same length of time that Dave Dombrowski's tenure in Boston was. So he, he got fired on... September 6, 2019, in what was the, towards the end of his fourth season. And um, that's where Bloom is. So if he makes it to September 7th, he was here longer than Dave Dombrowski. So I just want to throw that out there just in case something happens in the next week. It's fair. And keep in mind, we've brought this up before, but a lot of executives will not go into a lame duck season, which is what I and Bloom is facing next year. So it's either... Something happens or he gets extended, I think. But um, hard <laughs> I don't to know. imagine an extension. An extension's a little tough to justify right now. But again, we'll see. Stranger things have happened. Micah. Do we even know his his contract status? Like, I feel like that is like I feel like with GMs, it's like really pushed under the the surface like i know we 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 know cashman got i think a four-year extension last offseason but with bloom we know when he started but i couldn't tell you when his contract runs out like you can't find it on the internet really anywhere like so i just i i texted or i dm'd rather a uh, a beat writer 
And uh, he said that uh, his exact words were, it is believed that his initial deal was five years. So, and Alex Cora, I think, has is under control through next season. And that's an option season. And that option was picked up last winter. So his option was picked up. Bloom got nothing as far as we know. Yeah. Yeah. So there's still some, some things to play out there once the season officially comes to a close. I'm sure we'll hear more about that at that point, but yeah, that'll be very interesting to see what happens with both of those guys. Um, so we were talking pitching with Bayo and pitching regressing. He's not the only one uh, coming in at number four on our bottom five. Terry, who do we got? We are going with Garrett Whitlock and full disclaimer. It's not his fault. I mean, this guy has been jerked around, um, you know, promised a couple of different things and, He's coming off a couple of injuries. He's in the bullpen now. We don't know definitively what the long-term plan is for him. I haven't seen anything anyway. I'm cautiously hoping that he's just going to be a reliever at this point for, for the rest of the time. I mean, he had a, a UCL injury. I don't know. I don't remember what the clinical term was, but he missed like a month or so, or maybe it was six weeks this time, and then... What was the other one? He had uh, some type of nerve issue uh, as well. So, um, so yeah, Whitlock should be in the in the bullpen from here out. But he's struggling in that role, and I hate to sound like a savage, but I didn't listen to the Nesson feed. I live outside of the market, so I have the luxury of picking which team's feed I want to listen to on the broadcast and I'm all for the Jimmy fund. And I I hope every year it it breaks the record from the previous year, but I just get so sick of the coverage and I'm like intensely focused on baseball. That's what I want to do. So I went with the Astros feed this time and they do have a good crew. And I was already aware of that. I mean, I probably, if I'm not watching a Red Sox game, I, the Astros, the Padres are, are two teams I like to watch for some reason, the Brewers. So I, I was a little familiar with the Astros crew. But it was interesting because they've made an observation that I've been pointing out all along. And they said, I forget who the batter was, the Astros batter that was at the plate. But they, they were pointing out how relaxed he was and how Whitlock was huffing and puffing the whole time like you could see like Whitlock when things aren't going well and he's not in a groove he looks like he's like on the verge of an anxiety attack he just doesn't look good and his mouth is wide open he's literally just breathing through his mouth and the dude's a mess right now he's just a complete mess he's not locating uh when he's getting hit he's getting hit hard and it was ironic today that he was essentially used in mop-up duty and that's not his role. I'm not saying that that's what he is right now. I sarcastically tweeted that that's what he is, but, um, but the state of this pitching staff is so bad that Chris Martin had to come into the game down three runs in the seventh inning. And then, and then Jansen had to come in in the eighth inning, still down three runs. 
that's how like that's how totally taxed this bullpen is and what's happened to Whitlock is is really sad and he's another guy like Brian Bayo that could totally benefit from uh, you know a, a different coaching staff so yeah Micah it's hard to watch because Whitlock, when he he came to the Red Sox in twenty one, it was it was automatic. It was a one two three you know, one two three inning almost every single time out. And now they've messed around with him for two seasons, and he really is a shell of himself right now. Now I personally don't think he's broken. Um, I think. He just hasn't had time to work on anything. I think it's just been focused on trying to get healthy. And he had, I think, one rehab um, appearance before coming back this time from the IL. That's just not enough. That's just not enough. And location-wise, he's all over the place. He's sitting middle-middle on almost every single pitch, and you're just going to get crushed, especially when you play the Houston Astros. Um, So... I'm not worried about Whitlock. I think I would I think he's a great candidate to just shut it down. Just shut it down for this year. Toss it up as a lost year. But I don't want to see him working in expanded roles in spring training next year. I don't want to see that at all. It should be two to three innings max if that's the role they want to put him in. If they want to make him a one-inning, seventh-inning guy to prepare him for a closer role um, the year after Jansen leaves, so be it. But I don't want to hear Garrett Whitlock and starter anymore because he just can't do it. The the velocity is still weighed down from where it usually is. Um, When he's a reliever, he's been 94, touching 96 occasionally. But when we saw him at 21 and even for parts of 22 as a reliever, he set 96, 97 every pitch, hitting 98. So his arm is just not at full strength. And I don't think starting is, it should be an option. If it is next year, I think we know uh, what type of season we could be in for because you're going to have the same type of injuries, I think, that um, occurred this year where he he pitches well for three or four starts and then he starts to wear down then he's on the il for a month just give me a full season of garrett whitlock out of the bullpen 60 appearances 55 appearances however you want to do it but it's time to maximize his value on this team which they have not done for the last two seasons i think i was under the impression it was worth a shot um but I do not feel that way anymore. I've seen enough, and I don't see how anyone could now say, "Yeah, let's continue with the starter um, potential." I, I just let's let's get good quality innings out of Garrett Whitlock moving forward. I was against it from the start. Um, I continue to be against it even after you know the first injury, and then you know working his way back, they put him back as a starter for a little stretch there. He almost convinced me. He had a stretch of a couple of really good starts, was going deep into ball games, pitch count was low, and then he got hurt again. And he, you know, this was a longer injury. It was more four to six weeks on the IL. He comes back, they put him in the bullpen because again, they're jerking him around. Even they don't know what they want to do with him. And now he can't even pitch out of the bullpen effectively. 
it's just they've completely screwed him up mentally. Um, and I, I agree. I think he's a prime shutdown candidate for the rest of the season. If if this gets out of hand, if you know, if they lose two out of three to Kansas City this weekend, forget about it. Shut it down. You're done at that point. Um, he's a prime shutdown candidate. And I know there's probably people listening home going, Well, you can't you can't shut down everybody. I know. But if you're out of it anyway, Whitlock, Bayo, these are young guys that you are invested in for your future. Shut them down. Call up Chris Murphy again. Call up Brandon Walter, whoever you want. Just call up any warm body you want to take their innings, especially if this is what Whitlock is reduced to, where you you only trust him in mop-up duty because he can't come into high-leverage situations. Then forget about it. Shut him down, and at this point, he needs to be introspective, and they need to have a talk with him about, okay, we've got you signed to a long-term contract. What are we going to do? You know, he. I know he probably wants to be a starter, but at some point he has to look himself in the mirror and go, every time I start, I get hurt. Like every couple of starts, I go back on the IL. Is this really what I want my career to be? Or should I just go back to being the shutdown reliever that I was two years ago? Where, you know, I like you said, Mike, it was automatic when he came out of the pen. I think that suits him better. I, I really think it does for his health and for his future. I think that's just the better place for him. So... That's what I hope they do. I, I hope, you know, obviously, like, I hate the whole talk of shutting guys down in early September because I hate the fact that the season might be over by then. But if you're, you know, in nine, ten games out of the wild card by the end of the weekend, you really have to start having those conversations, especially with guys like Whitlock who are young talents that you are invested in, particularly pitchers, in the long term. I just think it's better to protect them shut him down, let him figure it out, you know, send him home, let him, you know, get all rested up. And then this winter work on him as a reliever again and really get him in that mindset. And hopefully next year he finds it because I would hate to think that they've completely lost him and they've completely broken him. I don't think we're at that level yet. I don't think we're quite at the Daniel Bard, Jobber Chamberlain level yet, but boy, it's getting close. It's teetering. So stop messing with him nail down a role for him and stick with it. If he, cause the other problem that the Red Sox have is if he starts to dominate out of the bullpen and he starts to pitch like two innings, you know, scoreless and starts to dominate that way, they're going to get that itch, right? Especially if, you know, starters start to get hurt, they're going to go, well, we could stretch out Whitlock again. No, no, don't do it. Keep him in one role and stick with it. Stop screwing around because, you know, you can't afford this guy getting hurt anymore and you can't afford him just mentally breaking any further. So I agree. It might be time soon to shut him down, send him to the pen for good and leave it at that. The one guy he really reminds me of at this point in terms of the predictability that he's going to get injured besides Chris Sale is Clay Buckholtz. You knew every season coming into it, he was going down with something. And it was never anything major. I, I don't, at least that I, I can recall. I, he missed a lot of time in 2015, but that was basically a lost season by that point anyway. But, but that's what it is. So that's why it's absolutely imperative to me that he stay in the bullpen. And only really, I only want him to be a one inning guy. I don't even want him to be a bolt guy. And... So we'll we'll see if it happens. 
I hope you're wrong because it, it, when you said Buckholz, it made me flash back to 2013 when he was like what 12 and one before he went on the the injured list, and then he was never the same after that. I, I mean, his I career just that, took a dive. I tell that story every season at least two or three times. So that was when he got caught using the bullfrog sunscreen, and they thought he was using it essentially for grip and the 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 game he got caught was in toronto when the dome was closed and so it became this big thing and and then within a within another start or two he had a shoulder problem and he blamed it on he was cradling his uh kid and he fell asleep the wrong way and ends up missing all that time but but luckily, in the postseason, I think it was the Detroit game especially, David Ross was as good of a catcher as we've ever had uh, in terms of game calling. I know I love to praise Sandy Leone, um, but Buckholz was topping out at like, I think, 88, 89 miles an hour, and Ross got him through the start, navigated him for like five innings, and we got the win. And um, so that was... That was cool. Yeah, yeah, I, I do remember that, and yeah, let's just hope that Whitlock is not uh, following that path. So, guess time will tell. Um, number three on our bottom five, yet another struggling pitcher, Micah. Who do we got? Three's Cutter Crawford, and about as bad as we've probably seen from him all season long. Kind of flashed me back to his first start in April against the Pittsburgh Pirates. Um, there was a lot of loud contact in that start, and there was a lot of loud contact today. Uh, two and two-thirds, seven hits, six earned runs, and he just wasn't competitive from the jump. The, the Astros jumped on him early, and he never got into any type of rhythm. You really can't even blame the defense really for this one. This was just on Cutter Crawford. It was a bad start. Um, you know, prior to this start, he had gone six straight starts with three or, or less. So like he was in a nice little groove. Um, but today just, he didn't have it. And, you know, when the team is really, really struggling, it was just really obvious that he didn't have it. And with the bullpen situation, the way it was from Monday, and then Cora was super aggressive with the bullpen yesterday, uh, today, just the fact that you had to get six and a third innings from the bullpen just not ideal um the innings and uh, the innings concern i suppose you know he threw 143 innings in the minors in 2018 but that's five years ago that's a long time last year he was only at 100 just over 100 innings and he's already at 103 innings so you know what they do with him moving forward is interesting we just talked about two pitchers that i think are it's understandable to consider them as shutdown candidates. And I wonder the same thing for Crawford, you know, how far do they really want to push him? Do they view him as a starter next year? I don't know, but I, I think you have to consider how, you know, do you really want him going 40 innings over his, his max? If you push him through the month of September, there's no need to, if you are out of it, maybe skip a start, bring up uh, Walter to, to, you know, spell him from a start i don't know but i'm still a believer in crawford i really like him i think he's been really valuable to this rotation um you know and again i view him as a number five starter number five starters have tough starts all the time if you say well 
and I do I look at him at as a number three, then yeah, this is a problem because he struggles with these starts, another bad home start as well, which has Terry stated multiple times. Um, so there's still concerns, but I I really do like what I see from Crawford. Um, I do think the velocity, there's been a major downtick, I would say, by like two or three miles per hour, um, which is concerning because two or three miles per hour in the big leagues, is a, that's a big difference. Terry. I'm not a big Cutter Crawford guy. Um, he's up here because we signed Corey Kluber, and he wasn't, you know, he's he's only in there by necessity, really. And I think, I mean, to me, the, the 2023 Red Sox, in my opinion, have overachieved up until a week ago. They they were they won way more than I thought they would, and due to the performances of of Crawford, uh, Jaron Duran, Nick Pavetta, even I thought Pavetta could be a guy that was DFA'd in June. That was one of my excuse me preseason, you know, takes, and um, but you know they all played crucial roles at, at crucial times, but. I'm just not a big um, Crawford guy long term. And the one guy he kind of reminds me of, and I'm pulling up his numbers right now, is in 2012, which was the Bobby Valentine season, um, Franklin Morales, remember him? Gave you some okay start. He gave you some competitive starts. And it wasn't super great, but... He wasn't real relevant beyond that season and and uh, only pitched uh, for parts of four more years. He went to Colorado, then Kansas City. Wow, he was on that 2015 team. He must have not been great because I don't remember him in the playoffs. That was the year Kansas City won the World Series. And then uh, the next year, he had just four innings pitched for Toronto. So I'm not sure if he got hurt or what, but that was the end of his career. But I that's how I see Crawford. Unless they can convert him into like a bulk role in the bullpen or even just a one inning guy, make him an Andrew Miller type guy, you know, that that's he would never be Andrew Miller for a million reasons. But Miller was a failed starter before uh becoming a phenomenon uh in in the bullpen. So that's what I think of him, but I knew you knew coming into it, you're up against Framber Valdez, who was like dealing until he just fell asleep at the wheel. You know, he had a he had a seven run cushion and um there was an error made, I forget who made that. Um, and then it, he ended up giving up uh four runs uh in the inning. I think three of them were earned. But um, when you've got Crawford going up against that guy who was uh, a preseason favorite amongst many to win the Cy Young and is basically pitching to that level, it's hard to be optimistic when, when your guy is Cutter Crawford. And um, two and two-thirds innings, not good. Not good at all. Yeah, this was an ambush game. Uh, the, the Astros were ready for Cotter Crawford. It's funny because it happens almost a week to the day that the Red Sox ambushed JP France, who was uh, having a great season for Houston. They jumped all over him too. So those starts will happen. Sometimes offenses just wake up and they jump all over a guy. As far as Crawford, 
long term. I I go back and forth on him. Um, I I've never been a big believer in him, but if you were to tell me, you know, who would you rather have as your number five starter in 2024, Cutter Crawford or Lucas Giolito on a one year deal? I'll take Cutter Crawford. Really? Like at, at this? Oh yeah, at this point, Giolito looks cooked, and I'd rather not hand out another stupid one year, ten million dollar contract to a guy who's going to come in here and just suck. I think Cutter Crawford can at least turn into a good, solid back end of the rotation kind of guy. Is he ever going to be, you know, a guy whose ERA is under four for the whole season? Probably not. He'll probably be just another Nick Pavetta. But if he can occasionally give you that really good start that you weren't expecting, or he at least is able to, you know, build up his stamina enough to give you, you know, 30 starts or 25 to 30 starts and stay healthy and take the ball every five games, I'll take it. Again, I'd rather have that than you look at the free agent class, apart from the top, top of it, right? Which is like Otani, Nola, you know, guys like that, uh, Urias. Unless you're going to get one of those guys, the rest of it, there's a massive drop off. At that point, you're you're trying to like resurrect Luis Severino, or you're bringing in a Giolito, or you're bringing in a Noah Syndergaard, or something like that. No thanks. I would rather have Carter Crawford, who's cheap, who's still young, and I think there's still a little bit of a ceiling there. I don't think that this is his max potential. I think he can improve a little bit. And again, it may just be that he improves to just a back end four or five. Okay, that's fine. If he takes the ball every five games, stays healthy, and can occasionally, you know, give you those outings where he goes six innings, only gives up three runs, and your offense decides to pull their heads out of their asses and actually contribute, then fine. I'm okay with that. I think that's perfectly fine. As long as the rest of your rotation is solid, they'll have to figure that part out first. But I think there is a role for Cutter Crawford on this team in 2024, whether it's as that number five starter or at least a bulk guy out of the bullpen. But I do want to see more. Um, I just think that right now he's, they're pushing him so hard and you can again, put him on the list of guys who got screwed by the, the wonderful GM. there, not adding anybody and just putting it all on these guys to deliver in the second half, which was uh, ridiculous of him to do. Micah, do you have any other thoughts on Crawford? I do. So I personally would love to see him be a two-inning guy next year in the bullpen. I think if that was the case, I would say this team has a really good chance to compete because that means the rotation probably was fixed. But if they're going to acquire Yamamoto or another of those high-end guys, they need more than one. <laughs> like they're not one starting pitcher away from saying, okay, Carter Crawford's a reliever now. Like I think they're two, maybe even three, depending on what they do with Whitlock, Hauk, like all these guys, like who knows what they're going to do. And if they go out and sign one of those high, high end starters, I just don't know, especially if Bloom is here, I don't see Bloom saying, I'm going to go out and get another high end starter. Like I think he's going to maybe make a splash with one of them. And then we're probably going to see a, a one-year deal or a two-year deal, something like that. Like that's what I could really see happening. I mean, if, if Bloom's here, I really do think he's going to at least acquire one starting pitcher. Like I just, I don't see how he could not. Um, but at the same time, Corey Kluber was on this roster, and we were, we we witnessed that, and that was just 
a train wreck. Um, just real quick, Jason, on your Lucas Giolito thought, what are your ideas or what's your thought on the fact that Giolito was part of a dumpster fire in Chicago and then he went to a dumpster fire in LA? What if he didn't play for a dumpster fire organization? Could he be, and I'm not saying Dave Bush is, is that's probably another dumpster fire, but um, could he be changed or, you know, fixed if he just wasn't a part of a dumpster fire organization? Let me put it this way. I don't think if you were to sign Lucas Giolito, I don't think he would come in and have a Michael Walker type of season. Um, could he be, you know, better than the utter mess that he is right now? Sure. Um, but again, I don't, I'm with Terry. I don't really trust uh, Dave Bush to, to really turn him around. And Giolito, even though he was part of two dumpster fires, is still pitching for a contract. So he should still have motivation to go out there and just deal. So if, you know, if that's all it takes to get him to just kind of quit and, you know, not pitch that great, or just maybe he's just really declining, I don't know. Um, that's why I kind of don't really trust him. So, again, I would have to see what the contract ends up being. If it's another one-year $10 million for Giolito, I'll kind of just shrug my shoulders and go, okay, let's hope it works, but I won't bank on it. In Giolito's defense, and we've already pointed out, he's he, he's been uh, a punching bag all year. His strikeout per nine is just a tick under 10. So the strikeouts are still there. I, I do think there is something uh, to work with. And if, if it does end up being a, like a $10 million um, deal, then I would be fine with that. But I think what could happen is he could be like a Sonny Gray type guy who perpetually gets, you know, two and three year deals. I, I think there will be one team that steps it up. And I, I don't quite know how I, I feel about that. But um, but I, I do think his market will be better than what some people expect. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what, what he ends up getting after what a disaster this season was. Like, if uh, Ryan Brazier can be fixed, I really think Lucas Giolito can be fixed. I'm just saying, like, I could totally see the Dodgers just salivating over Lucas Giolito, a guy who has a, a almost a 10K per nine. And, yeah, he has a brutal ERA, but they're probably like, ooh, I already see two fixes, and then instantly he becomes the ace that he was, the Cy Young candidate. Um, because that was in there, and, yeah, it was 2019 and 2020, but that's really not that long ago for a guy who's, I think, just 30. So, I don't know. If Ryan Brazier can be fixed, I really believe anybody can be fixed. Houston or L.A. will will get him, I feel like. And the Red Sox will get Noah Syndergaard, who couldn't be fixed by the Dodgers, couldn't be fixed by the next best program, which is probably Cleveland. I'd throw Tampa in there, but they broke them all. Um, and so... We'll we'll see what happens, but I still think Zach Davies. That's my go-to guy. That's my pissed off like that's who Bloom will target guy. My my money's on Herman Marquez, but yeah, either way, it's not, not oh, looking gosh. great. <laughs> yeah, but we'll see. Um, coming in at number two on our bottom five, we're gonna switch gears here, get away from some pitching for a little bit. Terry, who comes in at number two? That is going to be the $311 million man, uh, Rafi Devers, who just continues to get owned 
by the Houston Astros. And they are owning him very specifically with the fastball. And he knows it. He knows he's going to get a steady diet of that, and he can't hit it. He can't hit it. He was 0 for 4 uh, in Monday's game, which featured Christian Javier, who's not a very good pitcher, mostly a a fastball-reliant pitcher, and nothing there. 1 for 4. I don't know who he got the hit off on Tuesday. That was the J.P. France start, who, by the way, just gave up one or two runs uh, compared to 11 in the previous start last week. And then Devers was 0 for 4 today. I don't remember how he got the run. It was probably a sack fly or a fielder's choice that came across the plate. But not good. And everybody loves to boast about how Devers owns the Yankees and very specifically Garrett Cole. But that doesn't mean much to me anymore if you can't beat the Astros you're gonna face the Astros if you're going deep in the playoffs you're probably gonna end up playing the Astros at some point during that run so you need to figure it out and he hasn't figured it out and that's frustrating because he knows exactly how they're going to attack him and it's frustrating to look at and during the series I was thinking okay if I'm an opposing team if I'm just a team that's not Boston who do I want on my team more Rafi Devers or uh, Alvarez, Jordan Alvarez. Who do I want? I'm probably taking Alvarez if I'm all those other teams. I, you know, he's just he just shows up and he's had postseason heroics as well. Um, specifically against, I think it was the Mariners last year, crushed a a very timely home run, and. So Devers just, he has to figure it out. And I don't know if it's a maturity thing or a mindset thing. Like it was never a problem with Ortiz and Devers is going to get compared to Ortiz quite a bit. And I think he's going to be almost as good as Ortiz throughout the, you know, the rest of his career here. And he's got 10 more years after this under contract with the Red Sox through his age 36 season. But, um, but yeah, I mean, Ortiz was calm. And and the thing with Ortiz was he always won the head game. He he always he always could figure out what was coming. Uh, are they are they going to have a, you know, a change change up on the inner half of the plate and if so, he would crush it. He just always he he would win the mental chess matches with with the pitchers on the mound and you don't see that with Devers. He's not really he, he's not playing chess most of the time. So we need to we need to see a little bit more of that. And he's got Justin Turner hitting behind him most of the time. And so with just a little bit more patience, I think he would be putting more balls in play. And, and getting on base. And I don't care if he hits a home run. I, if he if he becomes a doubles machine, I'm good with that. As long as he's rifling it, you know, into the outfield, through the gaps or off the wall, whatever. That, that's all I care about. So next series against the Astros, which unfortunately I don't think we're going to the playoffs. It'll be next year. Uh, I hope Devers has that circled on his calendar and, and makes it one of his top goals for 2024 that he's going to crush the Astros. Yep. Micah. 
It's been tough to watch. Um, he had that crazy series against the Yankees. I think he hit like 750. Everything he hit was hard and for a hit. But then he went away for 10 games. And I think with Devers, if you look at his overall numbers, they're, they're not bad. 267, 344 OBP, 509 slugging. He's 24% better than league average. Like If you look at the his end-of-the-year statistics, you're going to go, hmm, that wasn't a bad year. But if you watch him on a daily basis, he he vanishes for, for stretches. And if you're going to be the guy, you can't vanish for multiple stretches. And this offense desperately needs him to be the guy. And I, to me, it's the... It's the control of the strike zone, as Terry said. It, he just chases way too much. He swings at pitches. I, I, I don't think I've ever seen a Red Sox hitter get themselves out more than Rafi Devers. He will swing at pitches a foot, two feet out of the zone on the first pitch or t- up 2-0. Like, he's just he's so jumpy. And, Terry, you brought up a really good point. You don't care if he hits doubles. His best season was 2019. He hit 311 and he had 54 doubles. He wasn't trying to drive the ball at the ballpark. Now, he ended up hitting over 30 home runs that year, but he wasn't trying to hit a home run every time. I think every time he's in the box, he's trying to hit the ball 450 plus feet. When was the last time we saw Rafi Devers hit an opposite field home run or hit a ball off the monster? Because that's that's what he needs to get back to doing. That's where he will find his most consistent success. The monster's there for a reason, and Ortiz was a damn good hitter because he said, you know what, I can hit the ball 450 feet to right field, but I can also just flick my wrist and get a double off the monster. And I, I we haven't seen Devers do that very much this year. And maybe it's his defense that's also in his head. I think that's a conversation for another day because – I think defensively he's got the yips, and if he's putting so much mental energy into his defense, that can definitely take away from his offensive game. And his defense is a major, major problem. Um, but it's just frustrating to watch him go through series where it, he looks lost at the plate sometimes. You, you just know he's not going to swing at a good pitch. There's no need to for a pitcher to, to groove one because – you can just live on the corners, and eventually he's going to swing at that. And, you know, the offense, yeah, it's struggling, but you have Turner behind you, or you could have Turner behind you, depending on how they put the lineup. And you're going to have a hard time finding a, a more consistent hitter than Justin Turner. So the fact that he doesn't have protection, that's just not the case. It's it, it, We need to still see him develop as a, as a hitter, and the mental side of the game is is what's getting him i think i don't know if, i don't think it's lack of preparation i just think he's, he's not trusting the process he's getting so jumpy and he just he doesn't have the mental side where he's he's putting the he's in control of the bat you ne- you never feel like devers is in control the pitcher still feels in control if they groove one you know devers is going to hit it but i would like to see him work the count to the point where the pitcher has to groove one to him i think that's where he takes his next step yeah, to your point, um, he's a career 232 hitter against the Astros. And that's actually probably lower because this is baseball reference. They probably don't even have it updated after today. So he's probably under 230 against the Astros. Some of his other numbers, like against the Orioles, he's a 291 hitter. 
we talked about the Yankees and how much he, he kills them. I mean, the, the average isn't there, but he hits 23 homers off of them in 96 games. You know, against the Blue Jays, he's a 307 hitter. I mean, against these other American League contenders, he does his job. He steps up. The Astros just have him figured out. And you saw it all series. Euclid was even pointing it out on the broadcast. As soon as they get Devers down 0-2 or in a two-strike count, Euclid called it. He said, watch it. They're going to throw the fastball up and away, and Rafi's going to chase it. And sure enough, he did. Javier did it. Um, France did it. Like they, they just know how to attack him. Get him down two strikes, throw a fastball up and out of the zone. Because for whatever reason, he just can't lay off of it, and he's going to chase it. So the Astros absolutely have the book on him. And this is where Rafael Devers, as you know, the guy in this lineup, as you know, the, the middle of the order bat, he has to figure that out. He has to find a way to counter that. He has to find a way to lay off that high fastball. Work the count a little bit more, you know. As you said, Micah, like maybe try and try and get ahead of a count. Try and get ahead of a count like two, one, three, one, and then get the pitch that you really want and crush it. He just has never gotten to that point when he plays Houston. Their pitch, you know, their pitchers are just too smart. Their pitching program's too good, and they've got them figured out. And it's a little bit concerning when your best player can be figured out that easily. That that's very concerning to me. And it's a good thing that like the Yankees are incompetent because they still can't figure them out and they give up bombs to them left and right. Um, there's a lot of other incompetent teams out there that will never figure them out. Texas probably won't because they, they don't know how to pitch either. But the Astros obviously do. And Houston's not going away. They're going to be an American League contender, you know, for the foreseeable future. So I agree, Terry. Like, that that's first Houston series next year. He better have that circled in big red ink and just he better be ready because it's got to get better against Houston. And it's really got to be better just in general because, yeah, like his overall numbers on the season aren't bad, but he hasn't been the impact dynamite superstar player that you paid him to be. Not this year, at least. And yeah, the the lineup struggled at times, you know, and it it took a little bit for for everyone to kind of get into a groove. But he should have been there from the start. He should have been, you know, your best player from Jump Street. And there were just too many times this season where he just disappeared. And it was like the rest of the team had to try and pick him up, and they're not good enough to do that. So I'm hoping that this was just a little bit of a, you know, I hate to call it a down season because it sounds weird when you look at the numbers saying, you know, down year, but it just feels that way. I'm, I'm hoping next year we get more of like the, you know, over 300 average, you know, more doubles, you know, maybe a little more power too. And the defense, good Lord, that has to improve. If anything, fix the defense first. Like, fix the defense before anything because him booting balls over there at, at third base left and right is just screwing over this pitching staff, which already has enough issues to deal with, as we've highlighted so far. So um, he's got to fix the defense. He's got to get just more patient at the plate. And I'm hoping that next year, he figures all that out, and we see a real superstar Rafi Devers type of year because that's what they need. So with that, we're going to round it out with number one on the bottom five. Micah, who's number one this week? Number one is Alex Cora. <laughs> and, oh, man, I could go so many different avenues with this one. But, you know, a couple weeks ago, I think we I, – I know I said on this podcast that – I thought this was Alex Cora's best managing job. And 
at the time I was completely convinced. I mean, he survived two months with three starters and bullpenning two games and they had the best record record in July. Uh, he was doing an amazing job. And then Monday happened and I, I still, I can't even believe it happened. I really, I look back and I'm like, how did that happen? How did Bear Claw hit? Do you know what his, what do you think his, the most pitches in a major league game in his career were? 40. Honestly, I, I thought with Miami, he was a starter. So I, I would have guessed even higher than that. But what was it? It was 46 back in 2021. Now, I know he was working as a starter in, in the minors, so obviously he was built up. But he threw 94 on Monday. You had a guy throw almost 50 more pitches in a big league game than he'd ever done before, and he just left him out to dry. It, ten, ten, 11 hits, 10 earned runs. That's just, you almost felt bad for him. And, and even people who are like pro-core, pro-bloom on Twitter – they were even saying, like, man, are you really going to send this guy back out there? And there was a report that Cora was like, yeah, he wanted to go back out there for the ninth. There was no way he wanted to go back out there for the ninth. Nobody wanted to go back out there in the ninth. I'm sorry. I just don't buy that. And, you know, we we mentioned the Bayo situation. Bayo was pulled on 82 pitches, and it's decisions like that that end up taxing the bullpen. And obviously there are... There's two factors here. Guys aren't performing the way they should. The starters are, they've been rough over this last 10 game stretch. He can only work with the, the pictures that he's given, and that's on Bloom. Bloom didn't go out and add any pitching. So, Cora, his hands are tied, but he decided, or his staff decided, or maybe it was decided by Bloom and above, but Tanner Houck was made a starter again. You know, Tanner Houck can only pitch four innings at a time. And Nick Pavetta can give you five or six. And Nick Pavetta was the best pitcher on the pitching staff when they used an opener. Why did they stop using an opener? I don't understand that. He was incredible. And then all of a sudden he was up. Oh, we're going to make him a starter again. He had one good start, I think. And then Washington beat him up pretty bad. And we haven't seen him in the rotation since. Why did they go away from an opener? That was gold. I don't understand. That makes no sense to me. You took a guy who can give you consistently five, six innings. He can even go seven if you really need him to, if he's if he's throwing well. And you made him a one or two inning guy over the last week. I, that doesn't make any sense to me. It's part of the decisions they've made were a result of this. And to me, Monday was, they needed that game. You were up four, three. Why not bring in Martin in the sixth inning? I, I like I, I, That probably sounds crazy and people will say, you don't do that. You don't bring in Jansen. Why not? You know, this this team has been, they have followed nothing like a normal baseball team. They had three starting pitchers all year. This isn't a normal situation. Okay. So you don't just, you can bring in your closer because you don't do anything normal. And that was to me, that game was on the line and it was a winnable game. And Cora completely punted it. And I've never seen a team do that. I've never seen a Red Sox team punt a game in which they are winning. And I don't care what anyone says, that totally, um, that just went right into Tuesday and it went right into Wednesday because this team was lifeless. Fenway Park was lifeless. It, it just, the team, the air was sucked right out of this team. And there was no fight in them over the last two games. And, and I really feel like 
Cora just kind of gave up. And I just, that doesn't make sense based on the fact that he just grinded and grinded and grinded all July with three starters. And he's going to save his bullpen for the next game. Well, he saved his bullpen for the next game and they were terrible. So why'd you save him? <laughs> you know, and you didn't even pitch Martin and Jansen yesterday. So I, I don't know. I, I just don't understand it. It made no sense to me. That was, like I said, 4-3, sixth inning. Bearclaw walks two guys. Why is he still in the game? I could not believe nobody was not warming up in the bullpen. I kept looking. I was like, is someone going to report that someone's warming up? They have to. And there was nothing happening. It was just Bearclaw and 94 pitches. I just cannot get over that. That is a mind-boggling stat. And I personally think the season is completely cooked. So I, I really think Monday was the last straw. And I, the handling of this pitching, it's not all on core because he can only do so much. But that game was on core, 100%. Terry. So, I mean, I've been up and down with Cora, and I've never been a Cora guy. We all know that. July, he was one of his best months he ever managed at any point in his Red Sox tenure. He didn't have Chris Sale. He didn't have Garrett Whitlock. He didn't have Tanner Houck. And it was a constant juggling act. And he did a great job. And then and then suddenly when things start to go sideways, it's not a quick fix. It's never a quick fix. And it takes a while to, to dig our way out of it. And I just think it, it, it's time for another voice. And Cora explained um, to the beat writers what his logic was. He said there were two plans coming into the game. It was going to be either just Sale and Barraclaw, or it was going to be Sale, Barraclaw, Martin, and Jansen. And it ended up being option number one. So he got behind and he got lit up and Cora left him out there to continue to get lit up. I mean, he, he took the game completely away from the offense and didn't give them any chance whatsoever to try to get the Red Sox back into the game. And that was the, um, Javier start. So he's been up and down and his outings are sometimes short. I mean, there was, Plenty of reason to believe the Red Sox could have been competitive enough to get back in the game, and they didn't. And um, I don't know if Nesson uh, reported it, but this is the first time in Astros franchise history they've ever swept the Red Sox at Fenway Park. <laughs> and, you know, Cora is a big part of that. And I, I just whether people I he's not the worst manager I, I I've I've said recently I'm never gonna hate Alex Cora as much as I hated John Farrell I thought Farrell is the most incompetent Red Sox manager of my lifetime I guess Jimmy Williams wasn't a popular guy but I wasn't that hardcore back then um, not even Bobby Valentine 
That year was hell. <laughs> but it was entertaining at times, and you knew by July it was just a one one and done thing. Um, and you didn't have Lackey that year due to Tommy John. It was just it was a bad year. The roster was terrible right from Jump Street. But but and I've always said this about Bobby Valentine, and, and I always compared him to Farrell. I think Bobby Valentine is a smart baseball guy like in, in the game. Like his in-game management is good. I didn't really have too many problems with a lot of his bullpen decisions and all that. But as soon as you put a microphone in him, it's a complete clown show. And, you know, and that's how he got in trouble with the Euclid controversy. Um, he and Pedroia never got along after that. But in in game, I, I thought Valentine was okay. And... I think Cora is okay, but he's just not tough enough. He's just not tough enough on the team. And I don't know who the manager is going to be next year. I, I'll say this. If Bloom does get fired, I want the next executive to get his own guy. I don't want, because Cora was forced on Bloom. I don't want that to happen again. Yeah, I, I don't know what the future holds for Cora, and I don't think he's had a great season. I think maybe he's starting to lose that locker room a little bit too. I, I'm not sure this is the right team for him to be managing because he wants to we, – we hear it all season long. Well, you know, I'm going to give this guy two games off because it's a long haul. we got to prepare for the long haul because Cora always plans to play in the playoffs. Okay, that's fine. But going into this season, I think even the most diehard – Red Sox fan, diehard, Bloom fan, whatever, would tell you that this was a fringe playoff team to begin with. I don't think anyone in their right minds would have picked the Red Sox to win the division this year and to be a guaranteed playoff team just based on how flawed the roster was at the beginning of the year. So Cora has to be able to adapt to that. He has to be able to manage differently where, especially now in August when you're fighting for a wild card, you need to manage to win now. And some of his decisions are still just going back to that. Well, you know, I'm, I'm managing for the next game or two games from now. So if I have to punt this one, it's okay because I'm saving my bullpen for, you know, later in the week. You can't afford to be doing that right now. Your team was on the brink and I, I think you pushed them over in this series. So I, don't, I think his managing style just didn't work with, with this team. And I don't think that it works with a team of, young guys who are, you know, breaking their way into the big leagues or, you know, a fringe kind of team that, you know, just needs that little extra push. Like he's not going to give them that extra push. He just, he kind of manages to get to October and then, okay, October, it's all systems go. But if your team's not October built and you need that extra push and you need to, you need a manager who's more, nope, we need to win every game this week. And, you know, if I have to, you know, not give guys a day off for seven, eight days, and so be it. You know, if, if Rafi Devers has to play 10 games in a row, then fine. He's going to play 10 games in a row because we're four and a half out of the wild card and we need to win. Cora's not doing that. Instead, he's saying, well, Rafi needs a day off. And you know what? We got the day off tomorrow, so let's do the back-to-back, -back, give him the series finale off, even though we've lost the first two games, so that he can have that extra rest day because, you know, we need Devers for the long haul. 
well, the long haul is about to end. The long haul, you've got like a month left, and then you're going to be sitting at home. So what good does that do you? It just doesn't make much sense to me. And Monday Monday night, I don't know what to how, how to even describe that, what, what he did to Kyle Barraclaw and just that just felt like him kind of just turning to like the, you know, the executive box, wherever Bloom was sitting and just giving a big middle finger. It, that's what it felt like. It felt like he was just like, you know what? You want to give me a bunch of crap on the roster? You didn't want to, you know, give me anything at the deadline? Fine. Here's, here's Kyle Barraclaw, one of your wonderful additions for 94 pitches. Sit there and watch that. It just, you know, that's what it felt like. It still feels like there's a massive disconnect between him and High and Bloom. And it feels like there's a disconnect between High and Bloom, Alex Cora, and the front office. I, it just, the direction of the team is just all over the place right now. So, um, that said, there's a lot of bad managers out there. Alex Cora is certainly not one of the worst. So, it's one of those careful what you wish for. If you're one of these fans that's saying, you know, Alex Cora absolutely has to go at the end of the season. Okay. I, I understand that. I sympathize with that way of thinking. Just keep in mind, there's a lot of really bad managers out there. And if it turns out that Cora is the one that goes and Hyam's the one that stays, then Hyam's going to get to choose his guy. And whether that's Sam Fold or whether that's some other analytical nerd we've never heard of, whatever, but it's going to be Hyam's choice. So you're probably going to get someone who's pretty much the exact opposite of Alex Cora. You know, we'll see if that's what we really want. We don't know yet. So it just, it, sometimes the grass isn't always greener. That would be my only, you know, word of caution to anyone who's saying, nope, Cora's got to go fire him now. Okay. But you may get a guy who's worse. So I don't know what the future holds there. Part of me kind of wishes they both come back and they both learn to work cohesively and figure it out. I just don't know if that's, in the cards. So I, I think Cora's future is very much up in the air, probably more than high and blooms. If, if I'm being honest, I think Cora is more on a hotter seat than high and bloom is right now. Uh, Mike, any other thoughts? Yeah. To go off of your point, be careful what you wish for. You know, there's people that say fire Cora and then they will be like, yeah, I want Jason Veritek to be the manager. It's like, Jason Veritek has no managing experience. And like, I don't want a first year manager for this team moving forward. I'm, I'm really not interested in that. I'm not saying I have a perfect guy in mind to come in that has managing experience. I, I really don't know. I'd have to look, but I, I don't want a first year manager. I really don't want to see that. And I think what made Monday even more frustrating was he did the same thing on Sunday. <laughs> because he left Chris Murphy in and the Dodgers were all over him in what was a two run game at the time. And they, he let him run and he got smashed. And then we saw the same thing on Monday and it was just like, is this really what we're going to do when we need to win games? And I just, I don't know. We know, we know Cora doesn't want to manage for forever. He's not someone that's going to be in this game, I think, for... I'd be shocked if he was still managing in five, six years. But it just... That was so weird. It really was. I I called my brother today, and I vented for like 45 minutes, and he's like, yeah, I don't really know what to say. That was kind of out of character for him, and I, I really think it was. It just... I don't even know how to describe it. <laughs> I'm just rambling now. So... 
I think I really do believe Bloom's seat is a little bit hotter, and I wouldn't be surprised if Cora has like expressed his frustration to ownership privately, like via a text message. Like, I can't believe this is what I've been dealt with, and you know, especially having you know worked with Dombrowski those two seasons and had all of his needs addressed. And the lame duck thing, I think, is more critical to a, a GM than it is a manager, I feel like. And because, I mean, the GM can screw up the roster uh, and out of desperation or what have you. And you could simply fire the manager and, and maybe still get back in it, as we've seen in recent years. I don't know. But one thing that's kind of crossed my mind is we talked about um, Garrett Whitlock, Brian Bayo, Cutter Crawford, and their innings limits. Could there be somebody whispering to ownership that you need to get Bloom out of here right now, this week, and then have whoever comes in shut those guys down for the season? Because like I said, Bloom's not going to do it. The win column, I think, is still somewhat important to him. He needs to... The playoffs are probably out at this point because the Red Sox, I think we got 28 games left. We'd have to win at least 20 or 21 of those 28 games, I think, to make up that, you know, six and a half game deficit, leapfrog the Blue Jays in the process and get in. That's the type of September you have to have. The math is brutal here uh, as far as the Red Sox getting into the playoffs. So that's probably gone. So I think with Bloom, I think now the goal is, you know, to try to get to 82 wins. That gives you your one game, well, your two games above 500, but you know, that's how it would have to be if you want to if you want more wins. So, I I I honestly don't know, but I don't I don't know who ownership listens to. I don't. I don't know who advises them, who their close counsel is uh, in situations like this. But Bloom could easily he could screw up this team bad, <laughs> you know. If if he feels like he needs to do it to save his ass, and I just I don't know. But yeah, it, it's definitely an interesting question. Like who who has more of ownership's ear? Is it? Or, or is it Bloom? Because they, they brought in Bloom, too, and they brought in Bloom to do what he's doing, right? Keep the payroll down, bring the prospect ranking back up. Um, but he's not winning enough games. But at the same time, you know, they with Alex Cora, he was suspended for cheating, and they basically kept his seat warm with that, you know, joke of a Ron Renneke season <laughs> and brought him back. So obviously they have a supreme sense of loyalty to Alex Cora, probably for 2018. So, yeah, I don't know who has more of ownership's ear. If I had to guess right now, it's probably Cora. I just think they're they're so loyal to him. But I don't know if that means that if Cora says, hey, Bloom needs to go, is, is ownership going to do it? Or are they going to say, well, he's doing what we want him to do, so you guys need to figure out how to work together. And then maybe that leads to Alex Cora stepping down. Um who, I, I don't know. Who do the players like more, Cora or Bloom? Oh, Cora. <laughs> exactly. Cora, so, yeah. Bloom is just not a popular guy in, in any way you, you put it. And according to Carabas, 
he had heard from someone close to him that ownership was a little upset that we didn't add at the trade deadline and, and get more competitive. So that's another thing that you know, gives me just a little bit of hope that this might be the end for him. When you, I'm, I'm emotionally invested in this. I'm, I'm emotionally invested in a firing happening because I just, I want to start winning again consistently. I'm so tired of the third wild card being the bar. I'm so tired of that, and I wanna, I wanna win the division again. There, there was a time where winning the division or making the playoffs was not even a question. It wasn't even a question. It was how deep are we going to go in the playoffs once we get there? And we're just not having those conversations. And so I want to get back to that. It's better for the podcast. I mean, we would do insane numbers if this was a competitive playoff team. And we, we did have a record-breaking season. I, I don't flaunt the numbers very much on the actual show, but... You know, we um, we topped out at just a tick, literally a tick under 40,000 a month uh, over July and uh, August. So um, the bigger that we're bigger than I ever thought we would be. But where's the ceiling if we're winning is is what I'm wondering. And and Bloom is literally held us back, I feel like. And so that's why. And when you're emotionally invested you read the tea leaves way more than you should and you start reading into things and, and your, your thinking isn't always the most rational. And I try to be extremely rational when I hit the record button for this show, but yeah, so that that's where I'm at. But I think Cora as bad of a series as he's had and as up and down of a year as he's had, I think he is a little bit safer, but I, I think there's a good chance they're both gone either way. I, I don't think it's necessarily one or the other. I think it's blank slate. Team's in a good spot. You got a young core. You need somebody who finally understands pitching. And uh, and that includes a new pitching coach. And and then we can we could be a first place team next year. Do you agree with that? If the right moves get made this winter, I mean, nobody had the Orioles doing it. And I mean, I'm not shocked that they're doing it, but none of us had them in the playoffs. I think we could be a first place team next year. I really believe that. I wouldn't put it past them. Yeah, with with the right moves and just the right kind of off season to, you know, add a few pieces. Why not? Yeah, why not? I think I think Tampa will take a step back going forward, as as we've seen. Baltimore, I mean, they're going to be there. I don't know how sustainable it is. Well, you know, if all their young guys continue to hit. Sure. I don't know what the Yankees going to do. Blue Jays might be headed for a little bit of a reckoning soon. So, yeah, absolutely. I could see it. I think and just to, yeah, and, and just to add to that, like, again, we talked about the free agent pitching. Add a frontline guy. Add, a you know, maybe one more guy after that. You know, you're, then you're kind of in business a little bit. You know, it, it's it's not impossible. I think Baltimore is going to be, they're the next Astros. I really believe that they're, they got the number one farm system. They didn't, they didn't go crazy at the deadline. They probably should have went a little crazier than they did, but, um, but they've got a nice young core and I think they're just going to steadily pump out these guys. And 
you're going to have a full year next year of that Rodriguez kid, Grayson Rodriguez, who who's on a tear right now. Um, so I, I think he's finally maybe in a groove and going to be a frontline starter for most of the remainder of his career. And I just think they're, I think they're going to be good for quite a while. Yep. Yeah. And I'll just say, I'll, I'll throw it over to Micah to, to wrap us up, but my last thought on, on the Cora thing, if you're a Red Sox fan and you want Alex Cora fired and the, one of the first two names out of your mouth is either Jason Veritek or Dustin Pedroia, <laughs> you should be, you should be banned from ever being allowed to watch the Red Sox ever again. So that's, that's the last thing I'll say on Cora. Micah, I'll throw it over to you. Any final thoughts? Yeah, I think the Red Sox could compete for a division. They should absolutely make the playoffs next year. Like, it, how are we not going to make the playoffs after so many years of it would be like five out of six years where they don't? But Baltimore is their best player hasn't even arrived yet, which is crazy because they have Adley Rutschman, Gunnar Henderson, but Jackson Holiday is he's going to be better than them. I, I, truly believe that he is a stud he's tearing up double a as a 19 year old just wait till he debuts and that's what's so hard about this division is the blue jays are a team that likes to spend the yankees still like to spend although i don't know what the hell they're going to do and the rays are the strangest team in the league that nobody thinks can win but they always find a way this division is so hard to navigate. And even if the Red Sox go and win the division next year, they could finish and last the next year. Like it's just this division is going to be so up and down because of the teams that are in this division. And I, I don't know. I, I don't know what to make. I there's a part of me that still believes that Bloom is completely safe. And I, I the Carabas story or where that he said that ownership was mad. To me, that contradicts with what we've seen with the payroll. They're not even a top 10 payroll team. And that's not Heim Bloom. I don't think Heim Bloom saying, yeah, I don't want to spend like a top 10 team. That's ownership saying, I want to cut spending. And that doesn't match up with then saying, okay, at the deadline, you should go make a deal. They don't match up to me. And if you if you pay attention at all to Liverpool football, because Henry owns them as well, they're kind of doing the same thing where they're not spending, they're losing out to the other teams. Like FSG is, th th there's a pattern here where they're not willing to spend for some reason. I don't know if they're saving money to buy other teams, but th there's not a desire to spend and win like we've seen in the past. And that's not on Bloom. That's That goes above him. So whoever comes in, if they're given free reigns, then yeah, okay, let's go. But their ownership, they've changed over the last couple of years. Well, if if ownership is happy with him, then why why wasn't he allowed to blow it up at either of the deadlines and then save money? And if you did it last year, you're under the luxury tax this year. And then maybe the approach last winter is a lot different. I think winning has been a mandate every year at the deadline, and, and that's why we haven't sold. That's just it's, my thoughts. Yeah, it's probably true. I do think that the Fenway Sports Group, they're definitely not as invested in winning as they used to be. I, I think there is a definite drop in interest. They used to want to, you know, for lack of a better term, like they wanted to come in and cut the head off the Yankees when they first got here. Like they were 
gung-ho on we are going to be the kings of the East. Now it's like, eh, just stay middle of the pack. Okay, sign Devers because the fans will revolt if they if we don't. But otherwise, eh, who cares? As long as we're putting butts in seats and we're, you know, we have this illusion of contention for most of the summer, even if it falls apart by September 1st, we're okay with that. So I, I do think a lot of it is on ownership too. And maybe that's why Bloom will be safe because maybe they do look at the Orioles and they say, okay, well, if he's building up the farm system this well, maybe in three years we can be the Orioles where Mayer is up and Nick York is up and who knows, maybe even Kyle Teal is your starting catcher by then. Like maybe they're looking at that model. I don't know, but um, certainly it, it's got to be that because otherwise if it's not, then yeah, you do have to look at changing course. And look at winter weekend last year, the barrage of boost. Did, did ownership enjoy that experience? <laughs> like, I think, I think that was an eye opener to them. And I had one more thing to go with that, but I forgot because I have a two second attention span. But yeah, I it's just I that that was kind of eye opening to them. And he hasn't been extended yet. I I don't think they particularly enjoy the criticism. I really don't. And and another thing too, I keep I I haven't really harped on this on social media, but Sam Kennedy did tell Ken Rosenthal that we were going to win the 2023 World Series. He said that. And I think that was the the general feeling, you know, amongst the whole front office. I really think they believed they crushed it last winter with with the Jansen signing, with the Martin acquisition, with the Kluber signing even. And and then it just it hasn't blown up completely yet. It, it's blowing up as we speak, but um but it hasn't gone well. They, they probably thought Whitlock was going to pitch 130, 150 innings. That didn't happen. They probably thought Halk was going to do it. That didn't happen. They probably thought Sale was going to do it. That didn't happen. And you can't blame it on injuries because these guys have always been injured. They were supposed to get injured, and they did. You know? So I don't know. I'm just, like I said, I'm emotionally invested. You guys are more balanced at this point than I am, but... I'm, I mean, I'm I'm invested, but yeah, it's it's hard to it's hard to really keep getting that mad when they just keep getting swept like this. So, um, at some point, you just kind of go, "Well, this is who they are." So, with that, we'll wrap up this show. Uh, we're gonna do our bastard series prediction show. That's gonna be available for your evening commute. We'll be giving our predictions for the Royals series. So. <laughs> Should be a good one, although they're in Kansas City, which I always think weird ha- weird things happen whenever they go to Kansas City. So we'll see how that pans out. And then this weekend, we'll also have our Bastards Roundtable episode coming out. We're we'll talking about some of that uh, weird DFA activity that happened this past week and whether or not that's going to become a trend uh, in Major League Baseball going forward. And then after that, the weekend crew will have you guys on Monday morning. They will recap this Royal Series. So. Until then, everyone, take care.